Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome back to The Delicious Podcast with me, Jilly Smith, and to our series featuring eight of the new cookbooks on the market this autumn. The series is sponsored by my favourite online bookshop, hive.co.uk, which supports the high street, giving commission to your local bookshop every time you check out. It's all about connecting us with bookshops again. Even if you actually don't get to your favourite bookshop very often, you know that it's sharing the spoils of your buy. I'll give you the code at the end of the podcast to get your 10% discount on any of the books in this series. But first, I'm in Jay Rayner's kitchen to talk food memories, mortality and jazz with a little hashtag flight shame thrown in as we pick through the meal that he says is a lifetime in the making for his new book, My Last Supper. The premise of My Last Supper is to answer the question that I've been asked most regularly during live event Q&As. People, some of them put their hand up and go, Jay, imagine you're on death row, what would your last meal be? And I've always said I'd have lost my appetite. I went on and on and on. And eventually I realised that that really wasn't the question they were asking. What they're really asking you, because if you think about all the people eligible for last meals, the suicidal, the terminally ill, it's not a happy bunch. What they're really asking is, if there were no consequences, if you didn't have to worry about how you felt the next morning, if you could have something that really expressed you, who you are, what would you have? And as a writer, I thought, now that's interesting. I can go out in search of the ingredients, I can tell the stories behind them, and then I can throw them, you know, mother, father and dodgy uncle of parties and let's see how it goes. And then you go out and you find those foods and you find the stories behind those foods. So is it a spoiler to say at this point what they are? No, um, not generally. There's one thing I'm, I'm keeping it to myself. But, you know, the chapter titles are there. So it starts with bread and butter and then it goes through oysters and snails and pig. That won't surprise anybody. Salad might surprise a few people who did it. Uh, Booze has to be there. Sparkling water, dessert. I did realise I could probably have added another five or six chapters. I'm sure you could. Cheese. and There was a point when I finished the book when I had to go back to the intro when I'd laid out that there'd be chocolate and cheese. And I thought, God, nobody needs that much of me. (laughs) But the point is that you you take each of these foods and you then go into I mean the history the makeup the your own personal food memories of them but just give us an example of what you found with just toast in San Francisco uh, th- that was an amazing story uh, there is a toast culture there are places vying with each other to serve the greatest slice of toast um, you know the four dollar slice of toast um, which uh, a lot of it's come from a, a place called Tartine um chad roberts the baker there is a bit of a cult baker if you can have a cult baker and uh, you know they they compete with each other to make sourdough san francisco is is one of those brilliantly self-absorbed cities um which thinks that it pretty much invented sourdough uh, partly because the bacillus in sourdough the thing that makes it sour um 
has been given the name San Francisco in its title because they thought it was unique San Francisco. It's not. It's it's all over the world. By the way, we are sitting on the flight path uh, into Heathrow, so every now and then a plane will come flying across us. That's what you get when you do the at-home work. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, um, I went on a toast tour of San Francisco. I probably ate more bread in that single day than I have ever eaten. Yes, because you're not a carbs man. Well, I am, as in I bloody love them. Um, but I do find that as, you know, I'm a large man. I would be a large man whether I was doing this job or not. You say you've given your body to your work. I've given my body to my work. It's not entirely true. I've given my body to being me. Um, the one way to control it is not to eat that large volume of carbs when I'm not reviewing. When I'm reviewing, you know, it's it's open season. If I need to eat the pasta, I will eat the pasta and enjoy it very much. But I, um, I tend not to eat that much bread at home. Yeah. Um, I mean, not to go into it too much, but actually you just say it works for you. And mm. there are plenty of people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it, it does work for me. Um, but I combine it with a ridiculous gym habit. Yes. Uh, which people also find surprising. Um, but I'm in the gym five times a week. But that's a theme that goes through the book, actually. It's it's a, sort of a narrative that's just underlying the kind of the sleep apnea, the health issues, the, the you know, the gen- but, your yeah. father died your and your mother, your, both your parents died Fairly recently. In the uh, last well, my mother's been gone ten years, uh, nine years. My father's been gone um, five. Um, I am a man in my fifties, and once you reach that point, um, when you realise that some of the people you're working with hadn't even been born by the time you left university, you know that experience. Uh, <laughs> mortality is there, and you live in. I live in fear of bits of me of chronic illness. Actually, that's what I. I don't really live in fear of being run over by a bus, or you know some terminal diagnosis. I live in fear of one of my knees giving way and that sort of thing. Um, and yeah, it's, it, it's present. You suddenly think, oh God, how much longer have I got? How much longer of good health? And what do I need to do to maintain that? Yeah. And so the kind of the obsession with decadence is, is sort of underpinned by that question about mortality, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, sometimes I worry that people take me a little more seriously than they should. <laughs> I don't think we do. Do actually. you know? No. So there's a persona in the restaurant reviews which is I'm face down in the pig. And I kind of think if you're going to write restaurant reviews, you ought to display the enthusiasm week in, week out that um, people might display if they were only going once a year. Mm. I think that's important, that you should never lose that enthusiasm. Um, whereas, you know, I can actually moderate my, my desires. Well, hang on when, a second. You're sort of making out that there are two Jay Rayners, but you really do eat out. No, like I do eat out all the time. Yeah, I do. And I'm very happy to do so. And, you know, one of the, one of the embarrassing questions people sometimes ask me is, how many times do you eat out a week? So the, the get out of jail answer is, oh, I only review one restaurant a week. And they go, oh. But then if I'm being honest, I probably fall into another three or four yeah. by accident. I have a bit of a... You know, I, I do a radio show for Radio 4, The Kitchen Cabinet, and on lunch times of those records, I need peace and quiet. And I go and I head off to a Chinese restaurant by myself. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm not going to say that name of that restaurant, but I am so going down there because I didn't know it. What, the Four but, Seasons? Oh, don't! <laughs> now everybody's going to be there. <laughs> I love Cantonese roast meats. Um, and that particular place, in fact, if you go in there, you, it wasn't my discovery. I was led there by Nick Lander of the FT and Simon Hopkinson. Oh, so Hoppy, Hoppy. So it's all, already packed. I, well, it's, it, it's sort of known, but it's not, it's not packed full of, you know, the food, food industry people we'd know. Yeah. Uh, it's mostly full of Chinese people. You use uh, your family memories to get into the food 
everything from bread to oysters, mm. particularly oysters, and we'll talk a little bit more about oysters in a minute. But you had an unusually foodie background, didn't you? Your parents were both into it. You ate out a lot. One of my parents was into it, actually. Um, so my f- both my parents had a, a, a meagre working class upbringing, quite abusive in its own way. They came from almost nothing in the way of, you know, uh, old East End Jews born in the 20s and 30s. My father, I don't think, ever actually felt entirely comfortable. There were a couple of places he liked. My mother, Claire, now, she loved them. And what she discovered, she she started as a nurse, but soon moved into freelance journalism, became very successful at it, and then became Claire Rayner, if that's a job description. But it gave her access to restaurants. Journalism in those days, I don't think it's so true anymore, but journalism was a way for smart, working-class kids to get on Mm, and get into the world. Yeah. And, you know, enter a, prof- a profession. And part of that was being taken out to restaurants by your editor. Yeah. Um, and that's what she did. And she introduced that in turn to me. I mean, but they were also members of Joe Allen from 1977. You know what you said there? You were members of Joe Allen. It wasn't a members club. That's true. It's just but, a but general restaurant. Yeah, but the brilliant thing. Um, so Joe Allen, um, if you don't know it, opened uh, in January 1977. I think one of the most influential and important restaurants in London. And if you look at the people who went through it, Jeremy King, who went on to found the Wolseley with Chris Corbin, was one of the maitre d's there, so was Russell Norman. Roly Lee was the head chef there. But what they did brilliantly was they created a private members club with no membership criteria. Um, though if you were not in, you risked being seated in Siberia on the other side of the wall. Yeah, and was, not knowing what the off-the-menu uh, Yeah, they, they were one of the first place to put an off-menu hamburger. Yeah. And they were the first place, I think, to have the menu on a blackboard. I remember when they suddenly started introducing paper menus, sometimes probably, sometime probably in the late 80s, early 90s, we all felt that something terrible had changed. They were just making it easier for their waiters, yeah. is the truth. But yeah, so they, they first went in January of 1977. I uh, they took us a few weeks later, and I I still go to this day, even though it's now moved location. And owners. And owners and managers. And actually, the amazing thing is that it still retains a certain sense of itself. I don't know if you've been to the well, new I one. I have, and I've done a delicious podcast on it, actually. It's an extraordinary yeah. story. Yeah. Absolutely extraordinary story. The, the mere fact it survived is extraordinary, let alone that it still has... A similar constituency devoted to it, by which I mean theatre land, a lot of middle-aged gay men. Um, it's, <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean, a lot of actors, a lot of... It's, it's very much theatre land, yeah. it's still the well, thing. Well, the owners deliberately did that because they did want to keep that mm. ethos. But but it was there that you first had oysters with your mother, is that No, right? no, I first had oysters with my mother at Rules. So Rules on Maiden Lane is the oldest restaurant in London, has been there since, I think, 1798. And it was located opposite what were the offices of Woman's Own magazine. And it was basically the canteen, which I find hilarious. The the amazing thing about Rules is, despite being there for 200 years and steeped in history, it's where Edward VII met Lily Langtree. It's got the Charles Dickens room named because he bloody ate there. It's appeared in countless novels, including a load of my mother's. Um, Has never been prisoner to that history. The food has always been good. I still go there. Um, And Claire would take us kids on a day trip round London to the offices of the the newspapers where she worked. And I would meet these men in their waistcoats who smoked too much and drank beer and then probably went to St Bride's, the journalist church, for memorial services to all their colleagues who had smoked and drunk themselves (laughs) to death. And then she would take... took me to lunch at Rules. I was 10. And I remember we sat on the banquette side by side, which I'd never done before. Um, and the waiter comes along and says, would you, would you be having oysters today? 
in a way that made it clear to me this was something she normally did. Um, and as a family, there was a rule that you could not say no to something if you'd never had it before. Mm-hmm. So it was clear to me I had to say yes. And the funny thing is, I don't actually remember eating the oysters. I do remember the the accessories, the pomp, that here's the spindle frame, here's the, the plate with the muslin-wrapped lemon and the vinegar and the Tabasco, and everything was just so exotically adult yeah. about it. Yeah. I mean, you love your oysters now, and you you describe them in a beautiful way, a food that dies as you eat it. That was a line that was given to me, by, so uh, in pursuit of the oysters, I go to Northern Ireland, but I also go to Louisiana. I went to this old firm in New Orleans, which has been knocking out oysters since the 19th century. And it was uh, Alison Sari, one of the brothers who runs it. I said, what's the attraction of oysters? And he said, it's the only food that dies while you eat it. This will appall some people. This will absolutely outrage. It outrage. me, I have to say. Did it appall yeah, you? Yeah. I don't know. I looked at it and thought, oh, they've got to go, they've got to go. Um, and you say it's a great food to be eaten as you're thinking about dying. Yeah, it's mortality, isn't it? Yeah. But it's also, it is elemental. The experience of eating one is invigorating. It does sort of remind you that you're alive. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's part of the appeal for me. It's also interesting because you are famously Jewish. You talk a lot about being Jewish. You, you talk about yourself as the Jew that eats pig, but also oysters. Yeah, well, I've got no time for um, the Jewish God, who is obviously a massively picky eater. I mean, would you like to invite him round for dinner or her? It's, um, yeah, I, but I do make the point in the book that... I take my identity as being a pork-eating Jew. And if you can get your head around that, if you can understand that, you understand an awful lot more about cultural Judaism, you understand an awful lot more about me. And as I say in the book, it's very self-regarding, this, I am a big pork-eating Jew. But if, you know, what is a Last Supper if not entirely self-regarding? I'll be back after the break to discuss the role of decadence in the fall of our empires. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist fitting into their schedule and of course the cost well better help can solve those problems it's totally online and built around your schedule it's surprisingly affordable too connect with a credentialed therapist by phone video or online chat all from the comfort of your home visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month that's better help h e l p the way that you talk about everything but particularly you know the oysters it's very fetishized you are the king of decadence and we've talked a little bit about you know why not let's talk about 
the timing of your book. If you look back through all the empires, you will see that they fetishise food in every single one of them. Just before the fall. When you say fetishise, do you mean it in an overtly sexual manner or just in a... Well, a, you sexualise it, certainly. I certainly, I certainly do. But I, I, I think uh, one of the interesting things about food is that it is not just about taste. It's about emotion and self um, and how we see ourselves and history and politics and environment. It's about all those things. Mm. Um, I, I often say there are an awful lot of people who know much more about the intricacies of how and what we eat. I'm actually interested in the people the, the, the human element of that. Um, do I fetishise it? I mean, I get into the detail. Um, I've always been slightly suspicious of those of my restaurant reviewing colleagues who seem to write an essay on what they did on their holidays before they get to the restaurant. <laughs> and I think if you're going to review a restaurant, review a restaurant. If you're going to write about food, write about the detail of food. Well, I suppose, I mean, let's look at what fetishising really means. It's about getting it out of balance from its provenance, perhaps. And you do talk about provenance and you do talk about it within sustainability. You've written before lots about sustainability. I've written a whole book about that. Well, exactly. And the food. And you mentioned it in this book and you mention it often in, in your reviews. But when you, I suppose, when you separate the actual eating experience from everything that has come before... That's, I suppose, what fetishizing is, and I, I put that I, to you. Well, then I'm going I'm to say not guilty, because I don't think I can be accused of that, given I went all the way to source. You know that I, I stood on the edge of, a, of, a, of an Irish loch to find the oysters that I eventually wanted. That I went all the way to a, a pig farm and met the. I practically met the boar and discussed, you know, boar um, semen and things like that. I mean, that could be taken as fetishising. Um, I am interested in the entirety of the supply chain. Funny enough, you see, one, one of my concerns about the book as I was writing it, not now I'm done, but was, was I, uh, with some of these memories which have nothing to do with food, getting too far away from that? This is a book written by a person known to, as a food, as somebody who writes about food. Should I be cleaving closer to it? You seem to be suggesting maybe I was too close to it. Well, I think that you, I think that what you do by being a restaurant critic, yeah. you know, uh, you and a lot of other restaurant critics, but you particularly, I think that you dislocate the, the restaurant experience from the food. You, I would think that... Well, it's certainly, it's certainly the case that I say I'm a restaurant critic, not a food critic. As in, I am reviewing how much pleasure your money will get you, one. Two, I'm a strong believer that one of the brilliant things about restaurants is that when you shut the door, you go in, you shut the door, you put the world on hold behind you. They are two or three hours of your life in a different environment. I've always said that if you want to experience life as a wealthy person, save up £500 and go to a very expensive restaurant because at that table you are as wealthy as they are. Yes, and that's actually what delicious readers are all about. They yeah. go perhaps maybe even once a year just to mm. Le Manoir or somewhere like that. Um, no, absolutely. But do you feel that the way that you write about restaurants and have written about restaurants for 20 mm. years now has created a thing that has nothing to do with eating? So but take you back to... Uh, Italy, for example, or, you know, Spain, where people eat as a family thing to do out of love. I feel that British food culture has lost the plot a little. I don't think that's fair. I, uh, that's a kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. So we used to have a terrible restaurant sector. Now we have a much better one and we're really interested in it. 
Uh, it's very vibrant. And one of the things that I think is really interesting is what's happening um, at the cheaper end of the market. Um, the, it used to be called street food. I don't think it really applies anymore. But we're talking about the opening of food markets uh, populated by a demographic. We're usually looking at the under 35. Um, and it's it's very dynamic. It's very frothy. And yes, people are driven by the next big thing. But that goes on in cities around everything. It's about taste making. But I don't think they're just buying into crap anymore. One of the problems we used to have in this country was we could be absolutely besotted by a thick tablecloth and a nice piece of glassware. And that period, I think, has passed. And now we're interested in the food on the plate. Yeah. Um, I think that's more to do with diversity. Well, it may be. I mean, you know, one of the brilliant things we have when the British middle class is bang on infuriating, ah, the French have such a... You just about just did it, Jilly. We say, ah, the French have such a deep food culture and the Italians and the Spanish. And they do. But I challenge you to spend a a long time as somebody who's experienced what you can eat in Britain and not get absolutely bored. My daughter's just come back from Italy. She won't touch any more pasta. Right. She's had it. You're going to spend two weeks in the Dordogne and after four days of steak frites and confit de canard and uh, tato citron, all marvellous things in their way, what you wouldn't do for a Thai green curry. No, absolutely. And I think that Britain does possibly have the best food in the world right now, but I would put that to diversity. Uh, Well, there's no diversity. No, absolutely. I, I haven't created anything. I'm not claiming anything. Well, it's just that over the last 20 years, there's been a lot of things that have happened. Jamie Oliver. I, I I started with Jamie Oliver. I actually put it to Mark Thompson for creating Jamie Oliver in the first right. place. But over the last 20 years, we have created a culture of uh, loving food. But it is a very different culture to... It is it is created for a start. Yeah, no, it is a very different culture. But I'm, I'm kind of thinking what would be the alternatives. We have become very interested People like to say, oh, but we're not cooking as much. But I don't think that's true. If you walk into the supermarket and see the volume of fresh produce that are going out, mm-hmm. um, what we do have, and it is a real problem, is, a, is an issue of polarisation and social exclusion. So that food issues, what you cook, your collection of shiny cookery books of the sort that you're sitting just behind you, um, is an issue for the well-heeled middle classes and those without access to money are excluded from food culture and that is a real real problem that does disturb me greatly and and i wonder if that is because of the fetishization question that food has become a thing of the middle classes it's become a thing of value it's it's about money it is about access and money um, I do my best, uh, you know, people constantly accuse me of um, reviewing restaurants that are too expensive, which presupposes that the restaurant industry is some enormous racket with people just coining it on the back. Of, and they're not. You know this. It's not, if you, you know, the old joke, how do you make a small fortune from restaurants? Start with a big one. Um, but we are as a nation, a bit uncomfortable with the idea that food should cost. If you want to go back to that reference of the French or the Spanish or the Italians, where they will understand that certain things do cost if you want to eat them and a large proportion of your income should go on food. We spend only 10% of our income on food. The, I think it's the one of the lowest in the whole of the developed world. And that's a real problem, an absolute problem. Yeah. Part of the way that you write about decadence in the way that you do is through your extraordinary food writing for which you have won umpteen (laughs) awards and I know that you get asked all the time and I would be lynched if I left your house without some 
real interesting insights on how to write about food. There is no such thing as food writing. There is only writing which happens to be about food. If you think that food writing is a different category of writing, you will fail. Um, the, the key to it is to look at it as any form of journalism. From time to time, I teach a, a single class on how to write about the same subject repeatedly. And the point that I always make is you have to do what you would do with any journalism, which is ask yourself, what is the story here? If you work out what the story is and then focus on your opening, you're halfway there. Uh, and there's something else, which is on a, on a bottom line with writing, nobody has to read a single thing you write not your children, not your mother, not your partner. Your job is to make them read from the first sentence to the second, from the first paragraph to the second paragraph. I, I, when I write one of my reviews, I am trying to make sure that you do not click away or turn the page until you have read every single word. And it is not um, your responsibility to read me. It is my responsibility to make you read me. To engage us. Exactly. And you do. But you started off as a news reporter. Yeah, I did. And is that the point? Feature that, yes, absolutely. That's how you came to write the story first. Yeah, I, I, I had covered literally everything apart from sport um, by the time I became uh, the restaurant critic. And I still regard myself as a reporter. I've, uh, the, you know, There's a notebook on my desk and it's usually in my back pocket. Um, and at the heart of this book, and I hope it, you feel it, the heart of my Last Supper is reporting. When I'm travelling through Louisiana and meeting, you know, racist Cajuns, or, you know, going to the uh, Modernist bo Bread Project in Seattle to see what, what nerdiness can get you, all of that stuff, that's reporting. Yes. Um, and I think you have to apply all of those tools to food writing as well. You do. And now you do travel the world. And again, before you, when this book was commissioned... It wasn't such a big deal about hashtag flight shame, Greta Thunberg, climate change. I mean, we, it does feel like we're hurtling towards changing the conversation in a very deep way. How does it feel now to be publishing a book right now, which is you eating around the world? I don't think that um, a single book like this is going to look like an anachronism in 10 years' time, if you know what I mean. We are still travelling. Um, and we are still eating. There are just different ways in which to do it. I had a review out at the weekend. Um, I'd gone on a, a press trip to Florence um, and ate a fantastic steak, so I decided to review it. And I made the point in that review um, that if you're going to eat beef of this type, you need to eat it rarely and choose the good stuff. Mm. There are ways to mitigate these things. And the assumptions that are made, I was contacted by an organisation, maybe I shouldn't say, oh, I'm going to... Um, about organisations whose uh, motives are absolutely exemplary. They're about clean air in London. But they, in the email, they said, will you make a commitment not to drive two days a week? And I came back to them and said, I, I can make you a commitment not to drive at all. I don't own a car. I got rid of a car. And it is about us all making, you know, specific choices. Do you get your electricity from renewable supplies? Do you, uh, do you have a composting bin? Do you have a recycling bin? Uh, do you stop buying bottles of sparkling mineral water and get a soda stream? Yes, I do. <laughs> um, we, we are passing through a period. Um, is this a book about pleasure? Yes, it is. Uh, is that unmitigated by any thought of the planet? No, I don't think it is. I'm very comfortable 
having written a book, Greedy Man in the Hungry World, looking at genuine definitions of sustainability, that I understand the metrics at play. It's not like I've thoughtlessly gone face down in the sourdough. No, but we do have new science to show that the carbon footprint is has to... I mean, it's reaching boiling point, literally, and we have to do something. And, and uh, fl- yeah. flight is the most important thing. I would love to be looking at food on trains. I would love the old romantic age of the oh, trains. Oh, that. Back. I know, but... I've reviewed for, it years ago. Well, I know, but for, for normal people, I'd love the Orient Express experience yeah. across Europe, and then everybody would be eating amazing food, not just in first you know, class on Eurostar. It's going to be terrible. Do you think? Yeah, it's always going to be terrible. I mean, there, there was one, I, I think it was a great Western that was quite good. Um, but food, uh, it's, like, it's like food in you know, restaurants with a view, restaurants that turn, restaurants on boats, restaurants that travel. They're always terrible. Because, because, it's never... it, because the food always has to be taken on board first. Yeah. It can never be fresh enough. Yeah, yeah. but I see the point. One of, one of the lovely things in the book is that each chapter mm. is finished off with a beautiful song. Now, oh, yeah. you are famously a jazz pianist. I don't think it's that famous. A lot of people are still slightly surprised. But yeah, no, I have a jazz quartet. And we've been gigging since 2012. Um, and it's all gone surprisingly well. We played, you know, we played Ronnie Scott's. So we've done the big festivals. Um, we're talking at the end of August. I'm about to open Tom Kerridge's Pub in the Park in Chiswick, uh, which is an awful lot of fun. Um, but I wanted to tell that story because it's a recent part of my life. And music... And food, they sort of sit very comfortably yeah. side by side. And your wife, Pat, is a singer, a jazz singer. Yeah, I, I, it's, in the old sense of the act, the vaudeville sense of the act, I think the act only really works because she's a, so good at what she does. Yeah. I tend to think that if you go and see a, a music outfit, ensemble, band, whatever, if you see someone sitting down in front of a piano, you, can, you assume they can play. If you see a singer, your first thought is, oh God, I hope they can do this because God knows there are enough deluded people. <laughs> And the first thing you, that any band, in fact any live performance, you have to do is reassure the audience that it's all going to be fine. Um, and Pat is brilliant and makes it absolutely clear that it's all going to be fine. Yeah. And I'm going to have to do a Desert Island Discs on you. It's your last supper, which is the one song from the book that you would take with you. Ladies Who Lunch. Um, Ladies Who Lunch, which is from Stephen Sondheim's musical Company, uh, which is uh, was originally sort of written for Elaine Stritch. Uh, it's about a, a, a grand old dame of society in New York um, who's far too bright for the milieu in which she moves, and she is raspingly furious at the ladies who lunch, who who you know, take in a symphony by Mahler or go to a painting class um, and talk about the fripperies of eating um, while actually enjoying it at the same point. Um, it also it took us three months to arrange that tune in a way that made it not show but show tune um and pat sings it brilliantly uh we recorded it on our cd um night of food and agony and so that one it would have to be that one and if you want to buy jay's book my last supper visit hive.co.uk and use the discount code delicious 10 that's delicious one zero to get your 10 percent off don't forget to listen to all the podcast episodes at deliciousmagazine.co.uk slash stories slash podcasts. And I'll be back next week with food writer and chef Donald Skian, who will be showing me how to cook a recipe from his latest book, Superfood in Minutes. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.